June 1, 2022, huge American Girl breakthrough. Right. Do you know where you were when you heard about it? I mean, I was not at Pride, but it was like right around that time. Yes. So Molly McIntyre is taken out of the vault, I guess we'll use that word, and she was re-released potentially in perpetuity on June 1, 2022. What do we think? I was at Pride this weekend. I didn't see her there, but I did not not expect to see her there, if you know what I'm saying. Real ones know. See you in your camp outfit. Beautiful. I would love my own version of that. Welcome back. Thank you for coming out, Molly, from the archive. Um, Great to see you. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm not Molly. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison, basically ready for my 35-year reboot any month now. I mean, I think we're all there. I'm still, I'm waning down my last couple of months as a Mm. 35-year-old, and I'm, you know, approaching. I don't want to, any, I don't want to be responsible for any cancer season erasure, but we are moving closer and closer (laughs) to Leo season, the third one during a pandemic. I have a lot of energy boiled up. I have a lot of pressure. And now this whole Molly situation, it's like something needs to happen here. Yeah, there's a song I hear on the radio a lot. And I'm I'm going to paraphrase. Um, basically, it's about big doll energy and just kind of like bringing <laughs> that right. into the summer. That's, that's, that's absolutely the right. Hit. Someone very generously shared with us a meme and it said, you know, forget hot girl summer, go with Edie or Edith Beale summer, mm-hmm. you know, not having a lot of money, we're Mm -hmm. all paying a lot for gas right Right. now, or maybe you're not, or you're paying a lot for something else. You know, to quote a TikTok I saw, because that obviously makes me very intellectual, why is a container or why is a set of bananas more than an hourly wage? I can't answer that question. It's Gemini season. It's not actually time for any of this, but... Molly's back. She's out. She's back. She's whatever you want her to be. I mean, I think the brand is trying to say that that was supposed to be meaningless, that it wasn't on purpose for Pride, but it's like, okay, we've been saying since day one of this show, or at least like real ones out there knowing their heart and their spirit. Like, you know, you can identify straight and still vibe with Molly. Like, it's cool. But I'm just saying Molly's life after the books end, like, I think that there were certain awakenings that happened, I hope. And... I don't know. Like, I just, you know, it's a proud day. It's a proud day to be a Molly. That's all I can say. I was at Pride this weekend in Connecticut. I went to the Middletown Pride. And first of all, the governor was like a mess. Like, politicians at Pride, it's like, please pull it together. He walked down the parade route and he just pointed his thumb at people. And it was like his publicist said to him ahead of time, you know, can you please, Ned, say something like affirming about gay people or like queer people or queer culture. And he was like, okay, got it. Don't need any direction on this. He literally was pointing his thumb at people and he just went pride, pride. He just said that one word, the whole parade route. In a way it was kind of iconic where he was like, I'm just going to say the name of the event over and over again. And I hope that that's what I'm supposed to be doing here. And, and I don't know. That's that's what happened. I think someone probably took him to the pride section at Target. And he, I think like many of us, became so completely bewildered by right. like the amount of text on the content. He tried to very quickly memorize a monologue, failed, and then was like, I only have one word. 
I mean, kind of. And speaking of Target, their pride line is better this year than it's been in past years. So congrats to them on that. We are dealing with corporate pride, which is always a mystery to me. I'm always looking for good pride sneakers, pride sneaker collections, not seeing any this year that are really doing it for me. So if anyone has any leads, I'm open, even though I understand it's all a problem. But you know, that's where I'm at right now. I mean, kind of like you're saying, it's like you just have to do things that feel good and be kind to yourself. I think people are feeling demoralized with the state of the world. You know, even the Queen's Jubilee, Allison, I was like, I I don't even know how to feel. Like, did you take this in? Do you have any thoughts about it? So, you know, we we are here today to talk about you know we're gonna get there oh yeah we're 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 getting there obviously but i think it's it's hard to you know bypass such an important moment i can take in and i can sort of contextualize content that i think is significant right that like she has done certain things that are you know like she is able to bypass her own country's environmental law right there are you know horribly racist policies that are part of policy at her palace. I think, honestly, one of the things that has, like, thrown me on an existential level was the elevation of Paddington Bear and the elevation of, you know, cartoons and then the queen as hologram. I really do feel, like, very often that this is a dystopian timeline, and I'm not saying that we caused that, Mm -hmm. but I think at some point there are ways in which, like, our interpretations of content have now been folded into actual content, and I don't know what's real anymore. Like, am I happy for her? I'm literally not even sure. Are you getting to, like, a Mandela effect where it's, like, was Berenstein Berenstain? Or, like, I saw one that was, like, what if I told you Ed McMahon was never affiliated with the publisher's clearinghouse? And I was, like, I refuse to accept that. That's what I remember to be true. But you're right. It's, like, we don't know what's real anymore. And caricature has become reality. Recovering Nixon on our Patreon this month. So buckle up for that. Like, speaking of caricatures that become real. So, yeah, I mean, the Jubilee, I didn't really take in too much of it beyond, like, seeing media coverage of it and, like, Prince Louis kind of doing the most, being all of us at a f- overly formal event where your behavior is prescribed. Um, good for him. But, yeah, it's it's odd. And it's also just odd to see them insisting on business as usual, which is very royal family of them, when things are just not great. No, I do think that's interesting, and I've I've read a lot of different sort of, like, response to, like, Louis and different things that are happening with that family. I do find it very striking, and, and I mean this in a completely serious way, that people are, like, willing and eager to boo a former actress, current actress, you know, actor, uh, who has, like, in some people's minds, like, wronged the royal family, what, whatever you you make of that. I think that they made the best decisions for themselves, and they did, you know, right. the best possible thing. Um, that people are so willingly, you know, out there booing her when, like, there really haven't been consequences for that for anyone except them. And then we have politicians who are accepting money from the NRA, and it's like, well, we can't boo them. Like, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the world that we're living in right now. And I bring that up in part because a lot of the books that we've been reading for this show lately are taking me back to, like, other really good series that we've loved. We've received overwhelming positive feedback about covering the All of a Kind family books. Mm -hmm. They really are just, like, this warm kind of hug. Mm -hmm. And the Rebecca books are feeling that same way. I really am loving this series for the mix of sort of 
patriotism, dissent, questioning, age-appropriate conversations, like beautiful dialogue, it's kind of all taking me in. And that is feeling more real to me than watching something like the Jubilee when the queen is her own hologram. Like, I don't, <laughs> I can't Look, get there. I mean, I'm still not over the Selena hologram, which I cannot speak no. about at this time. But you're right. It's like people are becoming caricatures of themselves. There's this insistence on a public persona of business as usual when these horrific things are going on in our world with like multiple shootings in our country in the past couple of just weeks with the NRA convention happening right after, seemingly untroubled by those events. I mean, it's it's just, it's a really tough time. Like I'll just speak for myself. It's a really tough time. So I understand both impulses to both escape into fantasy, which is what I think the royal family presents for some people, or like a narrative that is not gonna harm you if you allow yourself to get Mm -hmm. lost in it. But at the same time, like other people find comfort from learning more or immersing themselves in like activist groups or, you know, ideas or books or talks or anything that can teach you more about these issues that are, you know, increasingly shaping our world even as other people insist it's not happening. So I get both impulses. I mean, I think it's hard to keep away from the news, but at the same time, I find myself watching Miss Piggy's Instagram account. I'm like, she gets me. (laughs) So it's like, am I okay? I don't know. But, you know, we just got to keep, keep going, I guess. But it's nice to have these books to kind of escape into. Yeah, I I think we both are really appreciating these books. And I know that there's like a few other things that we wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, You mentioned that like Watergate is kind of I don't know, like, did it choose us? God, Allison, I don't know what has come over me. I truly, (laughs) like, I'm I'm worried about me right now. Like, somebody check on me. I am so in deep on Watergate right now. First of all, I... solved it. You know that, right? Okay. Okay. (laughs) But wait a second. But wait a second. (laughs) We solved it, but I think it's, like, this is where we get into, like, the stories we tell about it. Like, not to get Joan Didion about it all, but it's, like, Martha Mitchell... I'm sorry. I want to be at her Profile and Courage award ceremony, and I hope they give her one posthumously the same day they give one to Leah Remini live and in person, because I would like to see both of these people honored for their service. But I've been re-listening to Slow Burn season one. Thanks to a listener to our show, I got access to Gaslight, starring the one and only Julia Roberts, starring as Martha Mitchell. We'll get into that. She was the wife of John Mitchell. She was talked about as someone who is mentally ill, when she was not, she was speaking out about Watergate before people knew about it. And literally, there's a term in psychology or psychiatry now that's named for her that literally is the condition when you explain to a psychiatrist that you think there's a conspiracy going on and you're right and nobody believes you. It's called the Martha Mitchell effect. <sighs> I have to take a beat, Allison. <laughs> I'm, I'm in it. Last night, I was Googling... How did Shirley ba- Shirley Temple Black feel about Watergate? Because, of course, she was named to the, the UN ambassador to environmental conference in 1972. So, of course, like, we all need to know about that. I am, I'm becoming a caricature of myself. Like, I hope that that's not happening to, per our earlier conversation. But, yeah, we solved it. But there's, I think, something about it that's, like, speaking to our times now, which is why it's still interesting to me of, like, there are literally people who are in the Trump administration who were involved in Watergate, never really um, held accountable for their actions then, rewarded for it now, you might say. But I think this like public persona, even with the shootings and everything that's gone on of like, my public persona is I'm all about morality and enshrining morality, but actually behind the scenes, I'm willing to do anything in a mercenary way to get what I want. 
I find that so disgusting that it's sort of like I can't handle thinking about politicians viewing the school shootings as meaningless in terms of moving the needle on gun reform or like literally banning drag performances in Texas. That's what somebody wants to do now instead of banning guns. Like that is so repulsive to me that I am in a way retreating to Watergate because I'm hoping I find something that makes now make sense. Mm. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's where I'm at. But anyway, I'm watching Gaslit, which like jokes aside, Julia Robert is, is amazing, is amazing. Sean Penn is John Mitchell. I have a lot of questions. The makeup, I didn't recognize him. And Matthew from Downton Abbey is, is John Dean. And I just want to put it to the floor. Like he was not that hot. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Like, I, <laughs> he was gifted retroactively by that casting. And I think we, you know, he probably feels good about that. But I'm just saying, like, no one involved in Watergate is ready for screen time. And I'm including myself in this. Like, I don't think I'm ready for screen time. But I'm just saying, like, the casting is I'm nuts. I'm going to disagree with that, but I'm going to save it for the Patreon. Oh, God. I can't get into that right now. But it's worth a watch. And if you're watching it, please reach out to me because I love to talk about it with somebody <laughs> or just Watergate in general. Like, those of you who are out there... Do you know anything about Shirley Temple Black and how she felt about Watergate? Like, get in touch with me. Anyway, Allison, I hope you're watching something that's slightly less unhinged than what I'm currently engaged in. So you've invoked Julia Roberts, which for me will always take us back to the winter and spring of 2019 when we watched Felicity, an American girl, an American hero. I'm ready to talk about... Becky with the matching hair. I'm ready to talk about her. Oh, my God. Yes, thank you to Julia Roberts. We've walked through American history with you, and I will continue to the more, as long as you keep casting yourself (laughs) in historically somewhat related (laughs) dramas and events, I'm ready. Okay, so let's, let's get into Rebecca and Anna. So this is the book that would typically stand in as the Learns a Lesson. It's book two in the series, came out in 2009. Rebecca can't wait to meet her cousin, Anna. She's sure they'll be just like sisters. It's crowded with two families and one small apartment, but Rebecca is happy to share everything with Anna, even her clothes. At school, Rebecca is determined to help her cousin learn English, despite the other kids teasing. But when the teacher tells her to include Anna in a special performance, Rebecca panics. Anna's broken English will ruin the show! Rebecca realizes that the performance is one thing she does not want to share with her cousin. How can she explain this to Anna? Kind of impossible to say. So I think that this uh, summary is is not entirely doing justice to what I think is actually a really brilliant book about... I I think that this has a lot of xenophobic vibes. Like, this summary kind of makes it seem like Rebecca is reacting against, when in fact, Rebecca is this extremely empathetic and thoughtful little girl whose world really gets turned upside down by the arrival of these family members that they've been anticipating. And I'm just going to say it, compared to Molly and her relationship with Emily, or even Samantha and Nellie, Rebecca is an extremely generous little girl Mm -hmm. who is very afraid that her cousin will have difficulty navigating things that Rebecca recognizes she has not fully had to navigate. I totally lost myself in this book. I really, really loved it. And I have to say, I think this is one of the best of the series. 
not not of Rebecca, but of any of the right. books that we've read. This was such a this was such a fun read. I genuinely was laughing reading this book, and I Me love too. when I find myself laughing at these books because I think in some ways drama is easier to write than humor. I think it's hard to work humor in, especially to a story that does not have a lot of light moments, shall we say. I mean, we meet in this book, Anna and her family coming to join Rebecca and her family after escaping real violence in Russia towards Jews. So this is a really fraught situation. And I think that, to your point, I think Rebecca is incredibly empathetic. And I think something that the book does very well is capture the vulnerability of being a child, which is that you're both trying to understand and make sense and like order in your own universe, this new thing that's disrupting your understanding of, you know, how your life is organized and where you fit into everything, which is in some ways what we were introduced to in book one. Like where does she fit in her family? How does she see herself? That's being disrupted now. And she's, we also get the vulnerability of her really wanting this cousin she's never met to like her. Like, to me, yeah. that's what I read when we first open the book is like, oh, like this just really basic, genuine feeling of like, I really want my cousin who's my age to like me. Because in book one, we learn she has twin sisters and she has the two younger brothers. So they're kind of paired off. And in this book, she kind of anticipates like this person could be my match. This could be like my twin, so to speak. Um, and she's really wanting that to go well. And it's sort of like the pressure of their first meeting and how they're going to navigate this new relationship together. This book does a lot also with language. And I want to point out that we asked a question last time to listeners because we were curious about the fact that one family member is named Booby and another is Grandpa. And we were sort of surprised by that. And we got some really cool responses from people who pointed out that you know, much same in my own family, certain names are a kind of honorific, right? Like people earn different kinds of titles and that the name that is being used in in this case, the booby is really um, about a super special relationship, right? A person who is very beloved. But now that I've read this second book and this actually comes up, What I really like about this is you have different pockets of Rebecca's world that are in completely different languages, and she is so adept. I love her as a narrator Mm -hmm. and as a guide. She's so adept because something that that description is not really getting at, Rebecca wants to make sure that her cousin is speaking the right language at school because she knows there are consequences, not because she thinks it's wrong or because she is ashamed. And I think that would have been a really easy way to write this book. And instead, we get just enough, and I think the Kirsten books actually did this quite well, we get just enough of a kind of turn where we have Rebecca explaining that, you know, people need to speak English at school because that's the rules. And we also have consistently throughout Rebecca saying like, but there are also like bad rules or there are bad laws. And and mm-hmm. she kind of points out things that she thinks are hypocritical or upsetting. And, and what a brilliant way to, I think, give some sort of realism to what it was like for her as this in-between generation. Yeah, completely. And I think that um, it really, in some ways, embodies what there's a scholar whose name escapes me right now, but I'll look it up after. I think it's Andrea something. And she referred to, she does work on the Lower East Side and Jewish immigration, and she referred to the Lower East Side as the Jewish Plymouth Rock 
And I mm-hmm. think that that's really interesting in terms of thinking of a whole section of New York or like, let's say, even Ellis Island, including some of the contents of this book as sort of a way station for people to literally become American. Like, what does it mean to become Americanized? And I think Rebecca is is putting it on herself to help Anna navigate that process, never having gone through it herself. But because she was born American and has immigrant parents, she can very easily code switch. And I think she has identified certain things that will separate Anna and her family from others or kind of make them be like identified as green as Leo, yeah. the brat boy in school, identif- um, calls new Im- newly arrived immigrants. So it's sort of like, what are the tells that are going to maybe reveal that you're newly arrived and how quickly can I help you like learn and adapt to behavior, appearance, customs, language that will make you seem like you're one of us? Um, not because there's any shame in their country of origin or their culture, which is still embedded into their family life in America, but it's mainly, like you say, like to survive a day at school, to not get relegated to that immigrant class, to stay in Rebecca's class and all that kind of stuff. I also love that we open with Rebecca and others saying, we've been waiting for hours, you know, just like this very human experience of even you can be going through one of the most stressful things in your life, one of the most transformative things in your life and still be sort of irritated about having to wait in a line, right? Mm -hmm. Or, Or something like that. And this family conversation is so both intimate in terms of the complexity of what they're talking about. And I found myself like really very moved by the idea that the family decides that they're going to sing to capture the attention of the family members that they're awaiting to get off the boat. And right before we do this, Max says, you know, another boatload of new Americans, just like we were not so long ago. And we're continually reminded that Max is very aware of, you know, his own background, his lineage. And he, I think, is such an excellent character at showing a person desperately trying to transform themselves in real time. We also heard from listeners, you know, to really kind of dig into and to think about the ways that Jewish performers were specifically targeted to change their names Mm -hmm. to succeed on the stage or in Hollywood. But I loved that moment. And you know, like some of my family members did come through Ellis Island. And this gave me a whole other angle to think about it, which was they probably were super excited or maybe they had to go to the bathroom and they've been standing out there forever. Mm -hmm. And it's like this whole bundle of nerves and talking about really serious and really mundane things. I like this family. I like being around this family. And I don't know that all the series get us there in the same way. Yeah, no, totally. And I love in this pet that passage that you flagged, you have these two emotions like standing side by side or impulses of being like, wow, that was us not that long ago. The grandparents get kind of a moment to sort of comment or describe what it was like for them coming over, like spending two weeks at sea. Like that must have been the twins are like, that must have been really uncomfortable. So it's nice that like the grandparents experience, like they get to share this with their grandchildren who will never know it. Max in that moment seems like it really that juxtaposition paints him as like extremely Americanized, like by choice that he's like, you know, it because to me when I read it, I was like, oh, wow, like he seems so much more American than the grandparents because of the way that he self presents. But it's really interesting, too, that right after that, um, Mama's memories are all about the medical examination, which is like 
big time subtle like a freight train foreshadowing about what's about to happen but she says when we were on the ship this is on page three other passengers warned us about passing through immigration just because you land in new york it doesn't mean you can live here the officials keep out anyone who has a serious illness if they think you have a problem they mark a letter on your coat with chalk an e means you might have an eye disease h means you might have a heart problem there's a long list and then it says rebecca had heard lots of stories about ellis island from her friends at school when immigrants had a disease that could spread officials sent them back to the country they came from she remembered what her friend rose krensky had told her about immigrants who were sick when they arrived contagious disease they call it rose said you got one you go back that's it and the ship ship company has to pay for your ticket um and then she's worried that hopes that Anna, who had been um, sickly in letters described that way, doesn't get sent back. And that's, of course, not the family member we need to be worried about. But it does introduce, I think, an important piece of this book is that this is the first, to my knowledge, American Girl example or direct interaction with eugenics. And yeah. because the medical exam at, at Ellis Island was one of the first publicly used intelligence examinations, not just medical exams. And they were directly designed and performed in some cases by eugenist physicians. And I think that that's something really important to think about. And for those of us who have family stories of family who came through Ellis Island, as we both do, if you go look at your family records, you will see sometimes that they will mark physical signs on your relatives' bodies as possible signs of you know, being, air quotes, feeble-minded, as they might say, or having some kind of deformity. Like my great-grandmother, when she came from Italy, on her Ellis Island record, it said that she had a scar on her upper lip. And that was noted as perhaps a sign of concern that she was not, you know, perhaps like the strongest specimen who would keep the race strong or whatever eugenicists might say of that. And I think it's really important to think about the fact that the family is leaving Russia because of persecution for their Mm. Jewishness. And yet even immediately upon their arrival, their bodies are being read for signs of otherness. Um, So it's like it's not necessarily the triumph story. I mean, I'm sure it feels triumphant in some ways or maybe just like relief because they're off the ship. But there's a lot going on with that. So think also about the contrast, you know, and I think it is important to frame it explicitly as eugenics because this is like a pioneering laboratory of eugenic thought. But think about how many people have family stories regarding a name change at Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. And we know through extensive scholarly research that that did happen, but not at the scale that many people believe. Often it was a pressured or a semi, you know, like internal desire to change something about one's name probably because of outside pressures, but it didn't always happen at Ellis Island. Think about that with the fact that we know, because we have thousands of records, that the way that your body was described in that moment would have a lifelong consequence, Mm -hmm. right? So we have all these kinds of like cultural anecdotes about like, oh, this person's name was changed on and on, when actually I don't think we've looked as sort of nakedly at this reality, right? That these medical examinations, the fact that there is this fear that this word um, lame, that the L has been given to the cousin, all of a sudden this has like this huge effect on the family. They've been Mm -hmm. worried about the wrong person, as you say. And you see Rebecca and the others kind of scrambling. Does L mean limp? No, it means lame, right? They're having this conversation. That term, that term lame mm-hmm. comes from eugenic thought. It's it's not a random word. It's a scientific term being used to describe him. 
all I could think was like, gosh, he just had a fall. Yeah. Right? Like he just got hurt. Yes. Um, and he is not a person who's like living with a significant lifelong injury. Like he tripped. He tripped you know? on board the ship and he he's limping because of that. And now like his whole life could have a different trajectory just because of this one fall. And I think too, like I was looking up um, in Chronicling America for like descriptions of these inspections. And I found that in the Labor Journal in 1913, so a year before the events of this book, um, we got a description of what the process was like. And it says, and this was during the peak years of immigration at Ellis Island, but it said medical officers there had to inspect 150 persons every five minutes to keep the gangway clear. So imagine you having your whole life in some ways determined, like whether or not you're lame or not, by somebody literally examining you at that rapid pace. Like what kind of gut reactions were people going by? And and even the intelligence tests that were offered were setting up immigrants to fail because they were developed based on knowledge that you would find in an American or French school textbook, which of course many immigrants in this period were coming from Southern or Eastern Europe, they would not know this, or geographic locations, testing people on locations in the United States. They're not from the United States. They're also not set up to know about anything in our country. So a lot of these tests were purposefully designed um, to disparage or demean immigrants. And the person who published his results who did this, Dr. Henry Goddard, in 1917 said, oh, by the way, my results only apply to people in steerage. People in first and second class don't count. So there's a lot going on with that. You also have to have this additional visual, and I appreciate how this was kind of snuck in so seamlessly. We learn when the family leaves and they go to Rebecca and the Rubens residence, we learn that Cousin Anna, um, she says, I loved this line. She says, I wear all clothes. And what she's saying is, like, she wore all of the things. So we have this, like, Joey Tribbiani situation (laughs) where this little girl has stacked all of her clothes on top of each other. So she's probably, like, sweating profusely, extremely uncomfortable. And the family is so gentle with each other in this moment because they don't want to ruin it right away and say, like, you are not keeping all of those clothes. Those clothes are not going to work for you well here. And also, they kind of smell Rebecca is just such a model in all of these scenes of being curious about her cousin, careful about the way that she talks to her, and also kind of framing it as a net positive of like, we get to be twins now. We get to do this whole other thing. This is about an upgrade. You don't have to fully change yourself. And I love the way that the author pulled us into that kitchen where this like probably kind of traumatic moment is happening of like you've been wearing all your clothes to try to protect yourself and to try to hold on to them and now you have to literally strip down and get clean and you don't actually know these people very well. We, we get so much in the first 25 or so pages of this book. And we also have this like dangling situation of, is that cousin Joseph coming back? We don't know, right? We don't know what's gonna happen to him. No, and we're also told, we learn with Anna in the kitchen where she's stripping down to take a bath with her mom and the men are sent to her bathhouse, that the mother says, well, if Joseph can't stay, if they're going to deport him, we're all going back to Russia. And it's Rebecca's mom who has to say, like, actually, no, there's no going back because, you know, the czar's army are going to come and take your sons away and your husband can't work there. So it's like, you know, on some level, you can't go back. But 
the maternal instinct of like, it's unfathomable to me that I would let a child of mine be sent back across the ocean permanently without me. So it's like, there's such a heaviness just to these early scenes. And it's so kind, as you say, that Rebecca, there's no pettiness there. There's no like, oh, I'm gonna have to share my bed with this person. Like she's genuinely so excited to wear the twins hand-me-downs with Anna and be twins. It's actually very sweet. I also love that almost immediately we meet other people. I I like the side characters in these books a lot, and I know we applauded this in the first book with the woman who was kind of framed as, like, thinking she was better than the shoe store. Mm-hmm. I love the peddler who we meet in this book, who I have decided is the same peddler from the Samantha books, just because I need that to be true. I love that person. I also uh, kind of enjoyed meeting the super, right? The person who's coming around who basically says, like, I'm not narking yet, but I will in a heartbeat that you have extra people living in this apartment. And the family basically tells him that you need to relax. I like the way that this family is both extremely cognizant of what the rules are and also kind of gives Rebecca real talk. Like, yes, we are not supposed to be doing this. It's also fine because they're family and we're doing the right thing in the long run. And we also have like moments later, Rebecca is is talking about Joseph and what's going on with him and references, you know, Papa says it's the law and they have these conversations like there are these rules that really circumscribe their lives, but they're also not afraid to kind of say like, yeah, but this family needs to stay with us for a minute. Like, leave us alone. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay. I think it's interesting that so much of the book is about normalizing negotiation as an everyday part of life, like negotiating what it means to be a member of this family, what it means to be an American, what it means to be like a law-abiding renter of this flat who's dealing with a landlord who's kind of a narc, but like it's okay to deceive him slightly because the policies themselves are unfair. Like there's so many things there that it's sort of like interesting for a child to navigate where you think there's a simple like right and wrong and actually like it's more complicated than that. And we also, I think a lot of it, I I really do value not just because it's what we were, you know, introduced to the series with. I love the learn to lesson trope. I do. I actually just really like it. I like going to school with these kids, knowing that with Samantha, we were only a decade earlier, but her life experience was so different. There's an entire section of this book where Rebecca has to explain to Anna that they go to a PS with a number Mm -hmm. and that that is a public school. And think about when we were going to school in, in a very formal way, out in kind of the middle of nowhere with Kirsten, right? We had like the the central log cabin that was like, or the, you know, one room schoolhouse. And then with Addie, we were getting closer to institutionalized schooling. When we were with Samantha, she was at private school. Mm. Now we're really kind of getting this sort of, you know, both unique and then exemplary experience of going to a very busy public school in New York City. And how does Rebecca kind of make her way with that? I like that their day starts with them having coffee. And I was like, wow, these are eight years old. These are eight year olds. (laughs) Could you handle their coffee order, which was like coffee, milk and a lump of sugar? No, and there's a reference to, you know, wow, this really is the country of milk and honey. 
One of the things that I think American Girl, when it's at its absolute best, is makes these girls feel so close to home and I'm learning something about a different life experience. I'm learning something about a different moment in the culture and a kind of background for this family. There's a kind of specialness to the way that women spend time with each other in this book too that I think we haven't had in a while. And I think part of that is, you know, from the beginning, right, this family has suddenly gotten a lot larger. It's totally taken, you know, for granted that like the men and the women will have separate time to kind of figure out their new domestic situation. This author is just extremely talented at pulling us into a women's domestic scene in a way that I don't want to leave. Like, I want to be there with these people, and that includes the kind of, like, school routine. I think that also ends up serving as a great contrast to the teacher, who I think for the period is kind of appropriately written as a bit of a not like difficult personality, but a strong personality, right? You'd have to be to like get yourself to that point to be that kind of educator. This isn't like Miss Honey and Matilda. It's not the teacher we remember from Kirsten. It's not the special teachers that Addie or Samantha have. It's a woman who's negotiating like a huge public school system and she's kind of tough. She is tough. I, I was like, man, I wonder if she's going to be like Miss Bliss and Saved by the Bell, but she was not. Or Fien- in a way, she's kind of like Feeny behind the scenes. Yeah. Like when I heard that the actor who plays Feeny was um, very was very nice to the kids, but he was like, this is a job and we're all going to le- learn our lines. And if you don't follow the rules, like I'm going to seem frustrated with you. So it's less like more William, whatever his name is, and less Mr. Feeney. And I do think that it's kind of tracks that like she has, we don't know how many total students are in this classroom, but presumably it's a lot. And, you know, like there's a eugenics project in that school, like assessing their hygiene, having to teach students who arrive every day with a different language background, all in the same classroom, like doing a constant assessments, discipline, Like, that's hard. I don't envy her in the least. No, and there's this total presumption that, like, she is in charge, right? And she would have been sort of, um, she's not quite of the new woman era, but this could actually be Samantha, right? This could be a Samantha type who by this point would be 20 years old. I could see her getting some courses at Columbia, right, wanting to be an educator This book is situated right at, like, the very early part of what's going to be a truly massive boom in public elementary and secondary education. It's kind of right on that cusp. But she probably comes from potentially an affluent background, right? She has had some way that she's been able to educate yourself. And I think that this book rightly kind of lays down that there would have been expectations of these children to act and behave and speak in a certain way without actually making it that that's how life should be or has to be. Like, this book walks a very fine line in poking holes at that without making it like, oh, you know, woke Rebecca Rubin believes in ESL, you know, before it would have been something that she, or ELL, before it would have been, you know, on her right horizon. Like, it's it's the right mix, I think. Yeah, and I think it walks that line by having her have some misunderstandings in the classroom with Anna, where it's like, 
Miss Maloney, the teacher, who is kind of an arc, but I guess well-meaning. And I do wonder if she's Samantha growing up, like when she takes the kids up to recess on the roof, <laughs> do you think there's a moment where she's like, oh my God, LOL. Like, remember when I hid orphans in an attic? Like, I love elevated architecture. It's inspiring to me. But when Rebecca is trying to help Anna in this like really rapid fire, frankly, scary to me, arithmetic, arithmetic teaser that Miss Maloney fires at them because she's like, your brains have been lazy over the weekend. So here we go. And basically <laughs> yeah. she does this thing where she's like, what is two plus two times three, like divided by four and you can't write anything down. And like, it's hard. I was stressed out. It took me back to that Molly arithmetic moment, the division table or the multiplication table quiz. And so Anna's like, I don't know what's going on. So Rebecca's like trying to hide her mouth and speak in Yiddish to her. So she'll kind of catch up. And she's caught and she's made to wear the Dunn's hat in the corner. And what devastates her beyond the embarrassment of that and the shame, which is what was designed to happen with the Dunn's cap, is that Anna laughs when the rest of the students laugh because she doesn't understand that Rebecca is being punished for helping her. No, and that kind of causes like a a pretty like brief moment of friction. It's not on the level of Molly asking a refugee to play bomb shelter. No, not quite there. Not quite there. So if I may, in preparation for today, I found a piece of fan fiction called The Breakfast Club American Girl Oh my God. May I share with you the casting? Please, please. So... This is by a user named Michael Venus. Um, So we have a brief prologue. Five young girls meet at a Saturday detention on April 2009. The school is George Lane County Park in Quartz Hill, California. Okay. Molly McIntyre is in the role of Andrew Clark, the athlete. Miss Gaminsky is Principal Richard Vernon. Kit Kitteridge is the role of Brian, a.k.a. The Brain. Charlotte Campbell is the janitor. Rebecca Rubin is John Bender, criminal. Samantha Parkington is Claire, a.k.a. the princess. And Felicity is Allison, a.k.a. the basket case. I'm not sure that I get it. I don't need to get it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fascinated by this Breakfast Club American Girl crossover. I don't know. So, So far of what we know of Rebecca Rubin, if I'm willing to cast her as whatever she, what was her archetype so in this one like the ones that you probably know the best rebecca is john bender aka criminal which is emilio estevez okay i don't let know me, about let that me, let me check that actually hold on hold on i'm, I'm firing the only up the one that YouTube. makes absolute sense is samantha as the molly ringwald princess character that tracks 100 percent. so john bender i apologize let me pull this up he is the anti-hero. See, I don't get anti-hero vibes from her at all. I don't either. I'll- so that's Judd Nelson. I apologize. That's that's Judd Nelson. I I misspoke. I Amelia was a, never the Amelia was never the anti-hero. He couldn't pull that off, except on the set of Mighty Ducks three, where he refused to be vaccinated. Quickly ending that show. Not going to get into it. So I've learned because I listened to an American Girl YouTube Q&A that, you know, 20 questions with Rebecca Rubin, that she loves math. Like, we're going to get there. She loves math and she loves school. And 
knowing that actually made me appreciate this book even more because Rebecca is not an immediate fan of everything her teacher does. You can tell she loves learning, but she's kind of skeptical of the teacher. And when we learn that there's going to be performances, the students up the ante for absolutely no reason. And it's kind of a shock when Rebecca and Anna get put in this like very prominent role. It's a major shock. Like, there are so many, like, big swings on both sides of the production of this piece (laughs) where it's, like, from nowhere. The teacher's like, hey, congrats to all of us. We've been chosen to recite poems about the flag at the school assembly. Everyone's going to memorize a poem. And I'm like, do we need 42 students all recite? Like, how many poems do we have ready to go about the flag in 1914? I don't really want an answer to that question. But I mean, this woman is committed to making all these students do this. And then they're like, but what about a song? Like, let's kick this up a notch. It's like people planning a dear graduation that gets way out of hand. <laughs> and I'm just like, I I mean, first of all, again, I love Rebecca's confidence that she's like, I will, of course, be performing a song. Like, it's just, it's her confidence. Like, I would be hiding. I would be like, I don't want to do this. Get me out of here. Like, when I was supposed to be in an environmental play, as you know, Allison, in second grade, I hid inside the lo- the dryer of my parents' laundry room with the door shut. And I was like, no one will ever find me. I won't have to perform in this play and save the environment. So I'm like the anti-Rebecca Black or <laughs> Rebecca Black, Rebecca Rubin. Rebecca Black, Rebecca I'm not Rubin. the anti-Rebecca Black. Crossover. Happy Pride. Friday, you know, leading into Shabbat song. Oh I don't my know. God. Just an idea. Actually, I would it. love not... that. That would be beautiful. Oh my God. A little educational piece for us. Is there an actress who has starred as Rebecca? Are we going to get a movie in this series or no? Because can we reach out to the actress and just be like, are you open to a TikTok performance of Friday? Maybe any of our listeners, if you're open, would love to have that happen and we'll promote it. We'll put it out for you. But Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that, so we should say that Rebecca's like, I want to sing a song about the flag. And the teacher is like, maybe. Like, she doesn't get a solid, yeah. like, yes, there's going to be an audition process. So, we're getting like an American Idol piece to this. We also, you know, let's just cut to it. Cause, like, if you have not read this book, you need to know that, like, Grand Old Flag is coming out it's a lot there's this is a song that's like about the civil war and also about like the futility of art i don't i don't don't know i've read the lyrics to the song allison now i'm gonna say conservatively 10 times because i can't make heads or tails of this (laughs) and i've seen yankee doodle dandy the george cohan musical starring james cagney who chose to bravely speak sing the entire george cohan songbook And I'm prepared to do some of that right now, but I do feel like it's important for us to get into these lyrics so that people can understand how bonkers a choice it is. Yeah. And I'm putting this on Uncle Max. I'm sorry. I'm putting this on Uncle Max because at Ellis Island, he was like, guys, wouldn't it be amazing if they were all like being antsy about waiting in there? He was like, wouldn't it be crazy if when they walked over, we were all singing It's a Grand Old Flag? And it's like, would it be amazing? Like, do these people know that song? And I'm sorry, but if somebody's saying this at me... I would be very confused. So we learn, I'm just going to take like a few choice lyrics and I do want to take us back. If you were with us on the Caroline journey, we talked a lot about, you know, the Star Spangled Banner and like what it means to see a flag and, and all of these kinds of moments and that will actually come back. There's a lot that's kind of laid into this that has that has sort of like civil war references 
part of it's about a flag. Part of it is also about a person who seems to have a relationship with the flag that I'm going to characterize as uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. I'm a great. I'm a cranky, hanky-panky, I'm a dead square, honest Yankee, and I'm mighty proud of that old flag that flies for Uncle Sam. That's fine. That I don't fine. know what those words mean, but continue. Though I don't believe in raving, every time I see it waving, there's a chill runs up my back that makes me glad I'm what I am. Here's a land with a million soldiers. That's if we should need them. We'll fight for freedom. Hurrah, hurrah for every Yankee tar and old G.A.R. I don't... My first response is no one asked. My second response is I like every heart beats true under red, white, and blue. I think what's challenging about reading these kinds of lyrics now is it's very hard not to imagine this being channeled into a Kmart commercial And to imagine a moment like a battle hymn of the Republic era where this really truly evoked a feeling that hadn't already been passed beyond like the harshest confines of camp to just complete absurdity. I it did make me that's absolutely true. And I do think music is one of those things that is so of a moment. It's such a time capsule and in, in a, but the best way possible where it's like, this is really capturing like slang from the period, references that would have been readily available to everyone who heard it. Meanwhile, here we are in 2022 trying to make heads or tails of a line like, um, any tune like Yankee Doodle simply sets off my noodle. It's that patriotic something that no one can understand. <laughs> it's so un- I'm it's uncomfortable. So but it's yeah. like, at the same time, Allison, like think about like our future children or like, youths in our lives and they reach teenhood and this is now happening gen z is regurgitating the fashion of millennial culture i'm not ready for that but say a youth comes to me 50 years from now we're sitting down i'm in a nursing home and they come to me and they're like oh my god like grandma what was going on with who was usher and what was yeah about and i'll be like i don't know it's a feeling like you had to be there i don't i can't explain it or like, who's Rebecca Black? What was so? What was the big deal about Friday? And I'll be like, if you don't get it, I can't teach it to you. If it's not on your noodle, I can't go with you there. So I had this resistance to Jack Harlow, and I wanted to sort of unpack that within myself. Like, oh, you know, why is this happening? So I go out of my way to listen to like a Jack Harlow mix on the internet. And within, you know... A week, all of a sudden, I'm listening to Dua Lipa. I'm listening to Churchill wow. Downs. Like I'm, and you know, I don't really care for music that you much. Don't. It's like not really something. But you know, it's it's sort of like he's he's a fascinating lyricist to me. No. Not not the world's most tasteful, but um, you know, you even find yourself thinking like, wow, I didn't find him attractive a few weeks ago, and then within a week, you're like, I get it. So you know, I think culture. I don't You're know. You're making a face, I, which is fine. I mean, listen, I'm sorry. I want this for you. Like, if this brings you joy, like, that's beautiful. That's kind of the no, journey I'm on with Harry Styles right now, where it's like, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention when One Direction was real or relevant, but his latest album, I'm like, wow, I get it. Like, I, I sort of think I understand what's going on with this. I'm not there with Jack Harlow as of yet, but I'm happy if it's speaking to you on some kind of level. I don't know. You mean to tell me, you mean to tell me it's a coincidence that he has a song about first class as if we don't live in the same class of society as Rebecca Rubin. In first I'm class, sorry, Justice for Fergie, that song is an absolute human rights violation. In that song, 
they talk about the perks of being a privileged person, That's right? True. Of being in first class. If Rebecca's cousin had been in first class, we would not have the L put on his outfit. That's all I'm going to say. If he had the, like, pop in the E, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, if he had a Jack Harlow in his life, we would not be talking about this today. He's closed. <laughs> I'll also, real talk, know. real talk, I put out feelers, and I reached out to my friend and colleague who works at the Statue of Liberty, and I was like... I need the full download on how you all talk about Rebecca Rubin and this book. She was like, not aware of it. I'm going to look into it. What? Expect to fall. Expect. That doesn't mean other people there are not fans, but expect to fall. Okay, that's fair. I just want to say that if I was performing at my first school assembly and I'm a newly arrived immigrant from Russia, English is very new to me. Yes, she had some English when she was in Russia. She was learning and you get hit with lines like, I'm no cranky, hanky, panky. It's like, first of all, Rebecca, you've been empathetic to this moment, but it's like, you're expecting me, like, I would not be prepared to go off book at this assembly. And English is my first, no. and some might say only language. Not sure if love counts as a language, <laughs> I'm gonna count it. But all I'm saying is, like, if we're thinking about emotional immigrant songs related to immigration, I know this is transhistorical and it, it didn't exist in the time, but Fightful brought us somewhere out there, which no. I cannot listen to because I will weep and I don't even know what it's about and I don't care to figure that out. This is not emotional. This is part of being American. We sing songs that are ultimately not very well written. Yeah. And where this book absolutely pulled me in, not unlike Jack Harlow, just going to say it. Oh, my God. No, Allison, dream bigger dreams for yourself. Allison, no. I'm sorry. It's it's Pride Month. I'm sorry. He's not part of Pride Month. Gavel. That's what I mean. That's why I'm saying. He's like anti-Pride Month. Like... This is my. He issue. makes women like choose to be queer. That's my this feeling. My, if you're out there and you've done issue. that, like call me. I don't know. I'm here. There's a support group. Honestly, straight women, I really do feel for you. Like it's really hard. Like that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying. We get Jack Harlow. I, my, that's what I'm going to have an empathy moment. I don't understand what this is like. And whew. Okay. 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 I'm coming so back. We have this beautiful trans transformation where Anna has been having difficulty saying flag in a way that her cousin and others want her to say it. She's she's been pronouncing the A more like an E. Again, if she had a Fergie in her life who could spell words out, wow. phonetic spelling, she might get there. There's this like incredibly beautiful moment where there's like they're forced to participate in this, right? They are yes. forced to be patriotic in a certain way. And truly, I think this is one of the most standout things of any American Girl book that we've read. Towards the end of this performance, Anna independently decides that she wants to wave the flag. And she's feeling, like, she's actually feeling this in this moment. And she says, I am feeling patriotic. And Rebecca is a bit surprised by this because wanting to be out there was more about performing than the feeling of Americanness. Mm -hmm. It, It didn't just happen. When her brother, Joseph, is spotted in the back waving a little flag, Mm -mm. when I tell you, I was eating chicken parm, I put the book down, I did finish my spaghetti, I put this book down, I really felt something in that moment, and and I hope people don't think I'm, I'm making light of it. 
I have not felt that kind of way since the scene in Forrest Gump where oh he, uh, Forrest Jenny. Gump and Jenny have that kind of interaction and she gives him the peace sign and she waves away. Um, she's been at the protest in Washington, D.C. and he's in his uniform. And it's just this like incredibly complex, knotted mm-hmm. moment of family, love, identity, patriotism. When he waves that flag It's this reminder, right, that, like, patriotism is kind of what we make it. It's this immediate connection. They're not here for, like, jingoistic Ellis Island America. They're here because they're literally happy to be alive, and they're hoping this will be better. I I couldn't... Could you imagine a better way to end this book? No, it it was so moving. And I liked that there was an exchange where... Rebecca was like, I'm patriotic. And Anna was like, what does that mean? And she said, it's when you love your country. And Anna responds by saying, well, I love Russia, but I don't like, I don't love the czar. And basically like the way he was persecuting my family, hence we're here now. And Rebecca kind of like gives space for that conversation, but it was a nice kind of complication of like, that patriotism is not without complication and it should not mean pure love of country without questioning you know, certain leadership or choices and you're like locating yourself in that complicated space or power dynamics. But the end of that book, that scene actually reminded me of the end of Yankee Doodle Dandy, Yankee Doodle Dandy, where George M. Cohan's dad is dying. And when they performed as a foursome, he and his sister and the parents in the vaudeville, he would say at the end of their performances, like, my father thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. And he gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom or something, and he's like, my father, and he's like, you know his parents are dead, and you're like, oh my God. And he's like, my father thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. And it's so hokey, but at the same time, I'm like crying. And this was not hokey, it was like genuinely like wish fulfillment, where you're like the whole book with the family, like is he going to be deemed healthy enough to be allowed to stay and to rejoin the family? And that moment of reunion is just so beautiful. But I do want to also acknowledge like the funniest scene in this book or like what we both thought was a funny scene that everyone should check out, which is that Rebecca clocks the fact that if they're going to sing Grand Old Flag, she's going to need some sheet music so she can tune up at home as an emerging performer. She knows what she needs to do to perform. And so she heads out to... The Market Street, and I forget what street it is, but there's a freeze Orchard Orchard Street, and and actually we've been on that street in all of a kind family. We had the same beautiful scene in that book of kind of just like the diverse offerings on the street, and and also the feeling that it feels like in a way returning to home if you're from another country and like you see all the you smell like the smell of the food from your country and people speaking your language and what have you. And Anna has that moment of like people are speaking my language, like people are speaking Yiddish and like, you know, she's understanding, like identifying certain foods and a lot of new things that she doesn't know. And they have an iconic exchange with a peddler of sheet music where basically Rebecca demonstrates to Anna that what makes you American in this moment is like your your capacity to bargain and engage in what we would call adversarial shopping. So she's like, I have three cents to spend on the sheet music. And originally this guy quotes her a price of 10 cents. And like, instead of being like, oops, I guess this isn't gonna work (laughs) out. It's like, I kind of love that Rebecca isn't put off by that. And is like, okay, what am I gonna do? And hits him with what? So they basically then bring bananas into the mix. Like there's, there's this negotiation about the sheet music and they're like, we're not giving up so easily. 
I love this line. I have here a young lady who has never eaten a banana. How many for one penny? Rebecca stared in amazement. Her cousin really did catch on quickly. The man handed her two green bananas, two for now, two for tomorrow. Um, And then there's like an issue of like trying to eat the green banana. Rebecca grinned. That's what I call bargaining. Don't ever pay what they ask. It's the first rule of living in New York. And then Anna laughs. We are smooth. Here's, Here's the thing. Like, I love this moment because I love the way that it makes someone experiencing something new not as kind of like a flaw in their understanding, but an exciting moment of opportunity. And as much as like he is being adversarial with them, he wants to play ball with them. He wants to like go back and forth with them. He wants them to actually have this experience. And really it's neither here nor there who has or has not had a banana, but it's sort of this opening, right? Like she's new here. Be kind to us. Yes. It's kind of like this whole book has been about negotiation in a sense. And this is the most over example of it, but it's also like the negotiation is a performance and we can welcome Anna into this performance that like you get a sense that Rebecca certainly done before and the peddler has done before and invite her to like play with Rebecca in having this kind of like over the top exchange with the peddler. And Anna does it like fits right in perfectly and says like, you know, how much do you have? Like you're trying to rob a little girl or like we can walk away. And Rebecca <laughs> like dramatically says like, that's it, I'm leaving. And the peddler then drops the price to what she can afford. But when she turns to walk away, Anna instinctively like puts her arm around her and is like, oh, like sympathetic. Even though Rebecca winks at her and is like, this is an act. And then it's like, oh, Anna's in on it too. And it's like this really nice bonding moment. But it's also just genuinely very funny that Rebecca's like, I'm getting away with something here by getting this sheet music. So my favorite review of this book came from a woman named Linda. And she wrote this review in all caps and she put granddaughters liked. And my sort of comment on this is like, Linda, you're all caps and no cap. And I love that for you. And I love that you're committed to this. This book has an 80%, has a four out of five on the internet. I'm giving it a six out of five to rectify that. Oh, yeah, I agree with that review. I mean, it's got it all. It's like we've got eugenics. We've got immigration story. We've got young starlet on her rise to fame, like trying to navigate sharing the spotlight with, you know, a co-performer and in a sense, I think it's really interesting that the teacher com- so commits to them having to perform the song together. Yeah. And the whole time I'm like, is are we going to get some sort of moment at the end of this where the teacher's like, and that's why I had you do it together because I knew that it would bond you or like that you would come through. And it's like, nope, this lady is too busy to care about like a touchy feely moment. Like no. she's like, I'm moving on with my day. Like I have enough to do. But it is it it has like a nice contained story. And in the telling of the story, you get so many different windows. Like we could have had conversations about so many different things in this book, whether it be like food culture or housing or labor or because there's this whole arc we haven't talked about of Anna's dad trying to find a job as a cabinet maker. Now he's taking a job in a sweatshop and, you know, everyone's concerned about that. And, you know, like there's a lot going on that I'm sure we'll touch on in future books. But it's nice. It's a tribute to this series, how rich it is that there are so many things that we haven't discussed. Reading this book also reminded me of a book I read years ago called Daughters of the Shuttle. And this just kind of brought back a lot of that information as well as a book. If you're interested in sort of a a real person's perspective of this experience, it's called Bread Givers, and it's considered sort of an American classic about this. I, I also have to say, I know we've said it before, 
the amount of moments where I am thinking about Sydney Taylor now, and I'm really grateful to listeners telling us to mm. check that out. This book and the biography of Taylor are such good compliments because there's so many ways where I think you could be just an absolute cynic about pageantry and patriotism as performance. And what I like about this is the girls making it their own in a way that I think we saw with Caroline, with Addie, right? There's kind of a a critical element there. I think for Molly, it was about the outfit and the curls. Like, I don't know that we have the depth there that we would like to have, even though that doesn't reflect well on us. But truly, like, kudos to this author for making me think, making me want to kind of, like, inhabit this world with her. Mm -hmm. I know we're going right into a holiday next time, and I'm so excited for that, right? I like the way that this is actually following the older arcs of, like, we're about to have a surprise. Oh, wow. Who knows? Who knows where we're going with that? But I mean, I just love to think about Rebecca being in conversation with, like, the Newsies cast. Like, yeah. you know, like, this is all happening at the same time. And, and how do they navigate? Like, what is patriotic to them? What's patriotic to her? We are really looking forward to people uh, continuing this conversation with us. We're also looking forward to two different events. We are going to be picking up the Wiki Baton on June 21, and actually, you can tell folks how they can get involved with that. We are going to be doing a Patreon watch-along of the film Dick on Tuesday, June 28th. So we are looking forward to talking about Watergate with you all and having that discussion about Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, so we're really excited for this. I love what editing Wikipedia, and it's something that if you've never done it, it's a really easy way to make a contribution to how people learn and understand history. So we're going to be working on, we're going to be identifying some women non-binary pages that we can contribute to and, you know, other historical events or anything really that people think is relevant to history that we think our listeners would care about. If you've never edited Wikipedia before, don't fear. This is a really fun and easy skill. Well, I will explain how to get started and we'll just have you do some easy things to get going like Um, adding citations to pages and really valuable things that help to, you know, certify information and add to, particularly on Wikipedia, there's a huge problem with um, really having as much representation of women and non-binary folks as men. So this could be an area where we make contributions. Um, We, I was inspired to kind of call for this after reading the Sydney Taylor biography and seeing how underdeveloped her Wikipedia page was. Like her life was so rich and dynamic and her page doesn't really speak to that. So imagine all the great pages that we could add content to. And I will also teach you about a new thing that will be your favorite thing, which is the wild and insane world of Wikipedia talk pages. And once you know about them, it's hard to go back. So much to say about this on June 21st. We're we're figuring out the structure of the event, but I think we're going to have a channel on our Patreon where people can go and edit with us all as a group so we can be talking um, and chatting with each other as we work. Um, And I'll also have some information to share about how to get started if you've never done it. So um, beginners, welcome and encouraged. And if you're a seasoned editor, we'd love to see you too. So much to look forward to in the Patreon. Thanks to all of those who have joined us there. Thanks to everyone who's listened and supported to our show um, for the past three plus years. We really appreciate you. And we will see you on our next episode. 